Our scripture reading for this morning will come from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. I'll be reading from the King James Version. Nehemiah, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Israel the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear, with the understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. Verse 3. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate, from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. Have you ever restored anything? Maybe you restored a piece of antique furniture. Or maybe you took on the, the challenge of restoring a vintage automobile. Maybe it was a, a dilapidated house. Maybe it was the whiteness of your teeth. No, but maybe you've engaged in a restoration project at some point in your life. And the reason we, we have an appreciation for restoration is because we have an appreciation for the original, for the authentic for that which came first. See, you could always buy a car that's more up-to-date or, or, or a car that's newer and has all the gadgets and gizmos, but there's just something we appreciate about the original. You can update a car. You, you can take an antique vehicle and give it all of the trimmings you can get on a new car today, but we have that appreciation for the original model. You know, that appreciation for the original drives us to restore things that are old, that are ancient, that are out of date. But that appreciation is especially important when it comes to masterpieces, particularly masterpieces of art. Pictured on the screen is the Pieta that resides in St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. It's a marble sculpture created by Michelangelo around 1499 or so. This famous work of art depicts the body of Jesus on the lap of his mother Mary after the crucifixion. And one of the most unique things about this particular sculpture is that it is the only piece of art Michelangelo ever signed. The story goes that after the... Uh, creation of this sculpture and its placement for the public viewing, Michelangelo overheard people assigning its creation to a different artist. He was only 24 years, 24 years old when he sculpted this. And in that, that moment, he's, he uh, impulsively went back in and engraved his name across the sash that resides on Mary's chest the only piece of artwork Michelangelo ever created and signed. 
he vowed that day after to never sign a piece of work again because he felt it too vain. That makes this piece of work quite valuable. In fact, it's estimated to be worth over $300 million. And in 1972, a man walked into the Vatican with a geologist's hammer and struck it 12 times while shouting that he was Jesus Christ. In the process of striking this piece of art, he broke off Mary's nose, severed her left arm at the elbow, and, bro- and, and, and broke off 100 other fragments of the sculpture. Afterwards, debate ensued about how to restore this one-of-a-kind piece of art. The, the debate centered around, do we leave it damaged and let the damage be part of the artwork at this point? Do we go about a restoration process in which we restore all of its elements but make it visible what's new and restored versus what's old and original? Or do we do a seamless, integral restoration where we use the original parts as much as we can scrape them together and make it look like it was never harmed in the first place? The Vatican chose the latter of those three options. And for 10 months, experts worked on this sculpture trying to get all of the pieces, all of the fragments that had been chipped away back in their possession. See, when the guy went in there and began hammering it, guess what the other tourists started doing? They started scrounging on the ground to pick up pieces to take home. One piece even had to be mailed from the U.S. back to the experts who were restoring this thing because somebody from the U.S. had grabbed a piece of that sculpture and taken it home with them. For five months, they worked just to get the pieces together. And when they did, they began reassembling it like a jigsaw puzzle. They developed a special paste out of the very same marble that was used to create this this sculpture and used it to glue the pieces back onto the statue. There were still some pieces they never recovered. And so they filled in the remaining gaps of the sculpture using replacement pieces from a copy of the statue that had been made from a mold before the attack. And through their meticulous efforts, the sculpture went on display again some 10 months after the attack, and those who viewed it for the first time couldn't distinguish the original from the restored. The point of telling you all of that is to point out that, the restore, that, that restoring the work of a master is an extraordinary task that requires a deep appreciation for that which is being restored. When you're dealing with a masterpiece, you don't restore it haphazardly. You, you restore it carefully, delicately, painstakingly. And the only way you can successfully complete such a restoration is by using the source material, by going back to the original. When we approach Nehemiah chapter 8 through 10, we do so with an understanding of restoration. Nehemiah had completed the restoration of the wall around Jerusalem, but he knew that wasn't far enough. That wasn't the end of his restoration project. 
And so with the help of Ezra, he initiated a spiritual restoration that focused on the hearts and the minds of the people. But Ezra and Nehemiah understood that such a restoration wasn't possible unless they restored the people's devotion to their source material, to the word of God that was communicated to their ancestors through Moses. Now last week we studied Nehemiah chapter 5, discovered how Nehemiah managed an internal crisis among the Jewish people. Nehemiah chapter 6 tells of one final push by Nehemiah's opponents to try and thwart the, the rebuilding of the city's walls. It also tells of how Nehemiah successfully maneuvered around their opposi- opposition to complete that wall in just 52 days. Nehemiah chapter 7 provides a genealogical accounting of the number of people from each family unit that returned to Jerusalem with that first group of exiles under the leadership of Jeshua and Zerubbabel. And that brings us to Nehemiah chapters 8 through 10, which tells how Ezra publicly read the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel to the entire city of Jerusalem and how they responded to it. And this public reading of God's word, it provided the source material Nehemiah needed to restore the people after he had finished restoring the city. But the only reason this spiritual restoration worked is because the people revered the word of God. And this morning I want us to notice just how they revered the words that could lead to their restoration in hopes that, it, that we will allow it to do the same for us. So notice this. As we'll journey through Nehemiah chapter 8 in particular, the first thing I want you to notice is that the people revered God's word by gathering. They demonstrated their reverence for the word of God by gathering together. Let's read the second half of the last verse of Nehemiah chapter 7 and the first half of the first verse of Nehemiah 8 together so that we can get the full picture of what's happening here. It goes like this. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. All the people gathered together. The construction of the wall was completed on the 25th day of the month of Elul, according to Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 15. In the Jewish calendar, Elul was the sixth month, and it has only 29 days. So that means that this gathering of the people, which according to our text, happened on the first day of the seventh month, that means that this gathering is taking place just five days after the wall was completed. Imagine the excitement of the people. Imagine the energy that was in the city of Jerusalem because they had just finished repairing that wall that went around the city. Imagine the patriotism of a people whose city had been restored. Imagine the zeal, the zeal of a people who had witnessed the restoration of their faith faith system through the rebuilding of God's house some years earlier and the rebuilding of God's city now. That excitement, that energy, that that zeal brought the people to a sense of unity. And that 
excitement, that energy, that zeal is compounded by the fact that they finished the work just a few days prior to the beginning of the seventh month. You may remember from earlier in the series that the seventh month is a big deal in the Jewish faith. That's because on the first day of the seventh month, they're to observe the Feast of Trumpets, according to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 23 and 24. And then on the tenth day of the seventh month, they're to observe the Day of Atonement, according to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 26 and 27. And then from the 15th day of the seventh month until the 21st day of that month, they were to, to, to uh, commemorate the Feast of Booths, according to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 33 and 34. And those three events, which all transpire in the seventh month, become known as the High Holy Days in the Jewish faith, and it was the most important month in the Jewish calendar. But they've specifically gathered as one on this day because it is the first day of the seventh month and according to Leviticus chapter 23 and Numbers chapter 21, they are to observe a holy convocation or a sacred assembly because it is the Feast of Trumpets. So they show reverence here for God's word by assembling just as he had commanded them to do. They're gathering and assembling on this day shows reverence because they are obeying what God had told them to do. Let me ask you right now, as you reflect on your life, does your level of obedience to God demonstrate your reverence for his word? As a parent, if you give your child instructions and he or she does not obey them, have they shown you reverence? Have they appreciated your authority? No. We understand that obedience is a demonstration of the respect, of honor, of reverence. And so right off the bat, as we are looking here at Nehemiah chapter 8 and, and what's going to be the reading of God's word, this group has gathered as one man to show that they revere God's word because they are obeying his word. They're complying with his instructions. They're following his orders. Reverence is demonstrated for God's word by gathering, but that's not the only way it's shown. The next thing you'll notice is that they're listening. What's interesting to me about this assembly is that they did not gather together to hear a riveting speech from Nehemiah. They did not gather together to attend the grand reopening of the walls of Jerusalem. They did not gather together for a community-wide fellowship. This wasn't a political rally. This wasn't a ribbon-cutting ceremony. This wasn't a block party. They gathered together for one very specific purpose— Look at what happens in the second half of Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. They gather together as one man in the square outside the water gate. And then they call on Ezra to bring the book of the law that Moses, the law of Moses that God had commanded Israel. They make a formal request the text presents Ezra's reading from the law of Moses as a fulfillment of a request made by the gathered community. 
But this was not a spontaneous request. As one commentator pointed out, spontaneity is ruled out by the fact that a platform had already been built from which Ezra could read and the Levites on, and on which the Levites could stand, according to verse 4. But even though this was not a spontaneous request, it was still a big deal. Look again at how this moment is described in verse 3 of, Ezra, of Nehemiah chapter 8. And he, a reference to Ezra, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. This verse tells us that this reading of the law lasted for some six or seven hours. Now that requires some deduction on our part. The language here says, or the verse says that Ezra read from early morning until midday. Now, if you're Bob Canolti, early morning means like 10 o'clock. But in the Hebrew language here, early morning meant when the sun rose. From sunrise until midday, they read from the law. You sometimes think that I preach a long time, and you're correct, I do. I did last week. But I've never gone for six hours. <laughs> An elder just amen that. What do I do with that? Six hours of reading from the law. And did you notice who's in attendance? It's not just men of the city. No, we're told that it's the men and the women and those who could understand. And that phrase, those who can understand, is a reference to children who are old enough to understand the law. We don't just have adults, we have children. Ch children capable of reason are present as well. For the six hours that Ezra's up there reading from the Old Testament, men, women, or children are out there listening. That's reverence. That's respect. That's appreciation for the words that are being read. And the text specifically tells us there at the end of verse 3 that everyone present was attentive. Regardless of how long it took and regardless of their age, everyone was attentive to the book of the law. That willingness to intentionally and actively listen to the reading of God's word shows a sincere reverence for it. Does your attentiveness to the word of God demonstrate your reverence for it? How much time in a given week do you read from God's word? On this occasion, in one six-hour period, they're totally attentive to and invested in the Word of God. Do you give God six hours in a month with His Word? Because they did it in one day. And that's reverence for the Word of God. I also want you to notice that the people demonstrated reverence for God's Word, not only by gathering, not only by listening, but also by gesturing. I'll explain what I mean by that as we go on. During Ezra's reading from the book of the law of Moses, there are various 
physical gestures in which the people engage that demonstrate reverence for God's word. The first gesture appears in verse 5, which says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was of all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Right now, you're listening to a sermon that's going to take at least 30 minutes. We don't know how long it's going to take before it ends because we're nowhere near there yet, but you're listening in a, while it's seated in a reasonably comfortable padded pew. For six hours, these guys are going to stand as they listen to the Word of God read. Standing communicates two things. First, it conveyed respect for the message. See, throughout the Bible, you can find other occasions where people stood when God's word was being communicated. When Ehud, the judge, told the Moabite king Eglon that he had a message from God for him, the king, who was not even an Israelite, rose from his seat, rose from his throne to field that message. And when God called Ezekiel, we're told that he instructed Ezekiel to stand on your feet and I will speak to you in Ezekiel chapter 2 and verse 1. Standing while hearing God's word conveys respect for that word. But standing for God's word also conveys active involvement in it. It's worth noting that the text of Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 5 it's worth noting that the text seems to imply that they remained standing until the reading was finished. And that physical participation for the duration of a six-hour reading showed that they were not passive spectators, but active participants in what was happening. See, it's very easy when Brother Iverson comes up here and reads from God's Word, or whoever it may be each week, and we sit passively by during that reading. That standing during the reading demonstrated their active participation in the reading. They weren't the ones reciting the verse. They weren't the ones with verbal communication, but their physical participation evidenced that they were involved in the reading as well. And so standing communicated reverence, but standing's not the only gesture we'll see here. Look at verse 6, the first half of verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. When Ezra opened the scroll from which he was going to read, the audience stood, but before he began to read, he offered a benediction, which caused the audience to raise their hands. And that raised hand positioning is a general prayer gesture in ancient Near East culture. And the raising of hands should not be because it it, as one commentator explained, demonstrated their, their sense of need and dependence. About a child, when a child needs their parents. When Leah wants my attention, you know what she does? She walks over to me and raises her hands. That's her way of saying, I need you. I'm dependent on you. Pick me up. The raised hand positioning, the raised hand gesture is communicating a level of 
dependence on the Lord that is connected to their reverence for his word. They need that word, just as Jesus would one day proclaim that word is, is, is bread. And you can't live without it. And that raised hand positioning is actually called upon by Paul of all believers in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8 where he states that he desires that all men pray with lifted hands. But that gesture is lost on us because it's not part of our culture anymore. But it was a way of physically demonstrating man's dependence on God and therefore showed their reverence for his word. After that, we're told in the second half of Ezra chapter 8 and verse 6, that the people bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Before returning to their standing position, the people took a prostrate position. What we're talking about is a prostrate position, not a prostate position, because we have had elders get tongue-tied on those two terms, so I want to make sure you understand what we're talking about. Prostrate is the position in which you get down on your knees and lower your head to the ground. It's a sign of humility. It's communicating that you're not worthy. It's still popular in the Middle East because it demonstrates that level of humility and submission that a servant would give to his master. This is the posture that Jesus took when he fell on his face and prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, according to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39. And it's a posture that's lost on us today. We don't really stand for the reading of God's Word much anymore. We don't lift our hands up when we pray. And we don't really get down on the ground with our face buried in the dirt. All postures that appear here in Nehemiah chapter 10, or excuse me, in chapter 8, and all postures that communicate something of the reverence they have for God and His Word on this day. Maybe in your own prayer life. You need to find opportunity to utilize some dis different postures of prayer so that you can appreciate the reverence that's shown throughout the Bible when men lifted their hands before the Lord or fell prostrate on the ground. Maybe you need to be reminded of that level of reverence you should have for the one to whom you speak or the one from whom you read through a physical manifestation of such postures. My goal is just for you to take away that reverence is being shown in a physical manifestation by the people who are there hearing God's word read before them. And the very next thing we find out if we continue to Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 9 is that the people demonstrated reverence for God's word by weeping. 
Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 9 says that all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now why were they weeping? Why were they crying? Why were they brought to such an emotional state? As one author said, the people were weeping out of a sense of remorse for failing adequately to observe the demands of the law. Their weeping in this moment communicated their remorse for their very own sins. See, it becomes evident when you look at verse 14 of Nehemiah chapter 8. At verse 14... We're told that they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Upon reading about the feast of booths, verse 16 tells us that the people went out and, and, and got the, 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 the leaves and the branches that they needed to construct their own booths. They came back into town and they made booths for themselves. And this was significant because according to verse 17 of Nehemiah chapter 8, from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. Now, we need to understand what that's telling us. We can read in Scripture of times where the Feast of Booths was observed by the people between, between the days of Joshua and Nehemiah. In fact, you can go back to Ezra chapter 3 where the Feast of Booths was observed year, a few years earlier. And so it's not entirely true that the Feast of Booths had been uh, overlooked all these years. It had apparently been neglected. And what I mean by that is the Feast of Booths had two purposes. The first purpose is it takes place in the, the seventh month, which is associated with right now, the month of October is often, the late September, early October, is often the seventh month on the Jewish calendar. And it's during that time that they're harvesting their fields. And the Feast of Booths was intended to be, uh, to occur in conjunction with the harvest, so that you're praising God for the harvest he's blessed you with. In fact, the Feast of Booths in some other passages is called the Feast of Ingathering, because when they gathered in their, their harvest, and so that's one purpose of it. The other purpose of it was to commemorate the Exodus. And so you have Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 39, which associates the Feast of Booths with the ingathering by saying, when you have gathered in the produce of your land, and then goes on to say that you shall celebrate the Feast of the Lord seven days, explaining that that feast involved dwelling in booths so that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. The booths had two purposes. One, to celebrate the harvest or bless them with, and two, to remember the wilderness wanderings. What seems to be the case is that they've been doing a good job of, remember, of remembering the harvest and a poor job of remembering the wilderness wanderings. And this failure to correctly observe God's command regarding the Feast of Booths serves as a metaphor for the people's failure to keep all of his laws. They may have done a great job of, of remembering to thank God for the harvest, but a poor job of remembering their roots in the Exodus. Picking and choosing what laws they'll observe and what laws they'll ignore. 
And here in this moment, as God's word is being read, and they're forced to hear all of his laws. It's making them realize just how much they failed. And they so revered the word of God that when they realized their failures, it made them weep. And then confess their sins. In fact, if you turn now over to Nehemiah chapter 9, the bulk of Nehemiah chapter 9 is a, a penitential prayer acknowledging the sins of their, their forefathers and acknowledging their own sins. Because the reading of God's word brought about the remorse they felt for having failed so miserably at observing it. Has God's word ever made you cry? Have you ever looked back at what God expected of you and been brought to tears because you realize just how horrible a job you've done at fulfilling his commands? We should have an emotional reaction to the word of God from time to time. We should have an emotional reaction to reading about his goodness, about what he's done for us, and how horribly we've done for him. The word of God should move us to tears from time to time as we're confronted with our own sin and our own failures. You see, ultimately what we're asking today is, do you have the same level of reverence for God's word as, as these people did when Ezra read it to them? And all of this culminated that day in a decision by the people to recommit themselves to keeping God's law. Skip over to chapter 10 now of Nehemiah. Look at what they declared in Nehemiah chapter 10 and verse 29. Starting about halfway through the verse, they said, We enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. This is significant. Because by entering into an oath, they are announcing their commitment to be obedient to God. And by entering into a curse, they are welcoming the consequences that come with failure to be obedient. We want the blessings that come with obedience, but do we want the, curse, the consequences that come with disobedience. You can't have one without the other. If you want the blessings of eternal life for your obedience to God, you have to accept that failure to be obedient comes with the consequences of eternal punishment. That's reverence for God's word. And it reminds me of the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence. The events here in, Ezra, in Nehemiah chapter 10, as the people commit themselves to the blessing and the curse, they signed their names to a document in Nehemiah chapter 10. You, see, you actually see it at the end of Nehemiah chapter 9, where they put it in writing that they're committing to this, uh, this obedience to God's law. Their leaders put their seals on a written document to illustrate that they are committed to obeying God's law moving forward. And it reminds me of the 
56 men that signed the Declaration of Independence. In signing that document, those 56 men were putting their lives on the line because they knew that after signing their names, if they lost the war, then they would be executed for treason. That's why after signing his name, Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Franklin famously said, we must all hang together, or most assuredly, we shall all hang separately. Of the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence, much has been written about their misfortunes. Some of it is true, some of it is embellished. But there is one story that's worth mentioning. It's the story of Richard Stockton, a signer of the Declaration of Independence who served in the Continental Congress as a delegate from New Jersey. On November 30th, 1776, he was dragged from his bed in the middle of the night by British loyalists who turned him over to the British Army all because he signed the Declaration of Independence. He was incarcerated in New York's provost prison and according to reports was intentionally starved and subjected to freezing cold weather. After nearly five weeks of brutal treatment, he was released on parole. But it took two years for his health to be regained. While incarcerated, General Cornwallis of the British Army occupied his estate. And upon leaving that estate, he took everything, everything Richard Stockton owned. See, the signers of the Declaration of Independence committed themselves to the pursuit of freedom. They were prepared to enjoy the blessings of that pursuit if they were victorious, but they were also prepared to accept the consequences of that pursuit if they were defeated. And for Richard Stockton, he experienced those consequences in the midst of that war. Now, I'm not here to extol Richard Stockton or to extol the pursuit of freedom as an, as an idol we worship. What I am here to say is, if we revere the Word of God like those Jewish exiles who returned to Jerusalem did, then we should be so committed to its integration in our life and our obedience of it on a daily basis that we're willing to accept the blessings and consequences that come as a result. This morning, as we're gathered here and we're reminded of how the people in Nehemiah's day revered the Word of God, I hope and pray that every one of us reveres it to the same degree. And it's my humble request today that if you have failed to be obedient to it in some fashion, that you'll respond to this invitation while together we stand and sing.